here and the opportunities she and her husband or family had, and they just loved it here. But as we talked about things that she missed and what was different, she talked about eating, especially. And, and this would not just be true of Armenians, but I guess it's really true of them. She said that, you know, they always expect that people are just going to show up and walk in the door for dinner and everybody would eat together and they wouldn't know who it was going to be. So they were always prepared, more or less, to have dinner for at least 10, 20 people at any time, but they didn't know who it would be. And she was kind of startled by the fact that here in America, nobody just comes over, you know, they, they kind of wait to be invited or something, you know, like that. Uh, but eating for them, of course, was really central to their culture and their life together and really brought them together. And there's, that's uh, not rocket science at all, but there's something also deeply scriptural about that. And as we look at the Bible, we find uh, that subject of eating all over the place. That's why I wanted to look at some things here. If you have the, there's a little outline that were scattered around on some of the tables. There should be enough. And you need a Bible if you don't have one. Uh, there are extra NIVs back here. Um, the, uh, the text I put at the top there, Jesus said, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Um, kind of thought about, can't say everything in one sermon, but uh, kind of thought about addressing that one. Does that mean that all of you who have jobs should call in this afternoon and say you're not coming in because you're not going to labor for the food that perishes anymore, <laughs> but only for the food that endures to eternal life. Well, I don't think so. My mom pretty much uh, drilled into my head. Her favorite verse was, if any would not work, neither should he eat. So, you know, that is, working is very scriptural, very scriptural. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. She had a lot of good passages for me. I, I have a strong lazy streak, so I needed it. But anyway, uh, so it's not that, but rather uh, the focus here that Jesus is talking about, the ultimate focus is always what? The food that endures to eternal life. <laughs> That's critical for us. And then Jesus fills us in. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Uh, and uh, well, let, let's just go to that Psalm 1. Psalm 1, if you would uh, take a look at that. Uh, and it's no accident, I think, that this verse is placed right at the, begin of the beginning of the Psalter when they took all of the Psalms and put them together in one book or five books, depending on how you look at it. Um, but this one came first. Um, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but what? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And the law of the Lord there is actually the Torah of the Lord, uh, which could mean the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, sometimes it's used in that way. It's certainly law is an appropriate translation, but it is something bigger than just the law, as we often think about it as Lutherans, law and gospel, the law that accuses, the gospel that saves and frees. This is law in a more general sense, the whole word of God, the whole instruction of God. His delight is in that law of the Lord, that, that whole instruction, the wisdom that comes from God. And then it goes on, and on his law, on that Torah, he meditates 
day and night. And uh, the word meditates is an interesting one there in the Hebrew. Uh, we usually think of meditate as something that kind of goes on quietly as we might read something or hear something and we just quietly think about it and mull it over and that kind of thing. And that's included in this word. But actually the Hebrew almost always entails that the, the person is also murmuring in an under, muttering in an undertone, <laughs> speaking the words. Uh, so for example, you might go home this afternoon and uh, all afternoon you'll be saying, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. At least I hope you will. You know, you might be kind of muttering those words as you go to sleep tonight. Or, or maybe the college students will be thinking, are you crazy? You know, or something <laughs> like that. Uh, what, whatever you might be thinking about. Anyway, it has the idea just to kind of mumble along the words as well as thinking about them. And this was an ancient practice, not just a Jewish practice, but an ancient practice, by the way. Our elementary school teachers will often teach us, don't move your lips when you're reading and you know, don't be mumbling because it'll bother the kid next to you or something like that. But in the ancient world, when you read a text, you also quietly spoke the words usually. Even if you were all by yourself, you spoke the words. In fact, there's a great passage in St. Augustine, early church father, where in the Confessions, he's watching, he, he kind of comes upon St. Ambrose, whom, of whom, for whom he has great respect, kind of his teacher, his mentor, and he sees Ambrose all alone, and Ambrose is reading silently. His lips aren't moving, and there's no noise coming out of his mouth, and Augustine is shocked, you know. <laughs> he's never seen anybody do that before, because the way you read is to kind of speak the words, you know. Well, Actually, that kind of meditation can be important. Martin Luther was actually big on that, not just reading the word, but that the word is actually what? In our mouth, and the word is in our ears. So it's not just quietly reading the word, but hearing it, saying it, speaking it. Our, our total life is involved there in that meditating on the word of God. Uh, Take a look at, uh, and uh, I might say also, Luther played a very significant role then in the, in the Reformation. Before the Reformation, they had the Mass and they had the liturgy, somewhat similar to what we have today, but usually the congregation didn't participate. <laughs> the congregation were more or less spectators, kind of like some big box churches today where you go and kind of kick back and see what happens, you know. Well, that was kind of the way it was in most Roman Catholic cathedrals at the time, where a choir or the monks or somebody else sang the liturgy and you watched. Luther did what? He put the liturgy and, of course, the hymns back into the mouths of the people. <laughs> so they are always saying the word and singing the word. And Luther talks about that over and over and over again, how important that is. Of course, music was extremely important to him. Uh, and, and he, put, he put the word back into their mouths, and that's, that's involved, I think, in this whole idea of meditating on the word. Uh, take a look at the next passage. It kind of backs this up, uh, Psalm 63, 6. Uh, Psalm 63, 6.
this is where the NIV sometimes uh, bugs me just slightly <laughs> because uh, uh, it, it's, not, it's a good translation, but it's not literal. And uh, on my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. And actually, uh, the word is the same word we saw in, the, in the Psalm 1. Uh, it's not just think, it's meditate, which involves words and mouth and that kind of thing as well. And then if you would also look at Isaiah 31, Isaiah 31, this is even better. Isaiah 31, verse 4. This is what the Lord says to me, as a lion growls, a great lion over his prey, uh, and though a whole band of shepherds is called together against him, he is not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamor because he's interested in the goat that he has there or whatever it is that he's preparing to devour. As a lion growls, a great lion over his prey. What's interesting, the word growls, is actually that same word that's elsewhere translated meditate. And so the lion, you know, or like the dog, you know, chewing on his bone, you know, and he's just tasty. And, you know, he's, that's the image here also for meditation on the scriptures, you know, just meditating on and ready to devour it. <laughs> So that it's not, just, it's not just an external thing, we're kind of looking at something and analyzing it, but that it, that it becomes an internal, it's taken in. You know, we hear it and speak it and say it. And, and, and we, as we say in the prayer, we hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, the scriptures, right? Uh, so that uh, it becomes, the, the word becomes a part of us. I can never remember, uh, I don't know, there are, Always doctors here. How many, how many cells do we lose each day and how many new ones do we make? You know, Brittany? Or, or should I Google it? Uh, anyway, millions, billions, I don't know, a lot of cells you know, coming and going. <laughs> and hopefully we're kind of making as many as we're losing. Uh, I guess not in our brains, though. We don't make as many as we lose there. But anyway, uh, uh, so we're, we're constantly being remade by what? By what we take in through our mouths, right? And likewise, you know, so that some of you are primarily broccoli and some of us are primarily donuts or something, you know, so, uh, so we're, we, you know, there, there's that constant nourishing that's going on. Well, the same thing is true with the Word of God, that nourishing uh, with, with the bread of life that takes place as we meditate on the Word. Uh, let me skip to, I just find these fascinating, Jeremiah 15, right after Isaiah, since we're at Isaiah, it's easy to find Jeremiah. Next passage. I started ministry so long ago that when I started teaching and when I would have students look up Jeremiah, they would all start singing, Jeremiah was a bullfrog, he was a good friend of mine. So, but that's an old song. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, Jeremiah 15, 16, when your words came, I ate them. 
didn't just think about them or look at them. I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. And then, as we're on a roll here, take a look at Ezekiel, the next major prophet right after Jeremiah. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 8. Well, Lamentations is in there, stuck in there. Isaiah chapter 2, 8. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. <laughs> then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey to my mouth. <laughs> uh, he really got into the word, right? He ate the word of God. He ate the scroll <laughs> that was given to him. I'd, I'd like to know more about that. But anyway, uh, the same thing then shows up in the book of Revelation. I won't go to that right now, but it's, uh, it's fascinating. This eat this book. Uh, is repeated over and over again. And even, even before Christ came, the Jews were focusing quite a bit on this theme and talking about feeding on the Word and feeding on the Torah and being nourished by the Word of God. And that all plays in to the fact that Jesus comes along and he is what? The Word made flesh now. Okay? And so he says... I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He is, in effect, just as he is the fulfillment of so many other things, he, you know, he's there in the Old Testament as the manna, he's there in the Old Testament as the rock from which the water comes, he is also there as the Torah, the, the Old Testament word, which is now made flesh in Jesus, the promises fulfilled. And uh, uh, just, a, just a kind of fascinating thing how uh, words play a part, how the word plays a part there and how eating plays a part there. Um, I'll go till, how about till 11.15? Is that too long or maybe just eight more minutes? Um, bar voice keeps me in line on that. So <laughs> we used to... Barb, by the way, is a primary example of eating. You know, she, I, I, I was, uh, not what she eats, but, uh, but uh, I was in Evansville for 33 years, you know, preaching and preaching and preaching and teaching and teaching and teaching and visiting and visiting and visiting. And now we left and all they remember are Barb's desserts, you know. <laughs> they, uh, that's, uh, that's pretty much all they have. We used, to, we used to invite people over to our house, you know, when, when we had some, something new going on in the church, you know, and not everybody always agrees with the pastor and, you know, something different. So we, we just have people over different times, you know, and, and they'd eat Barb's desserts, you know, and they were on my side, you know, they were just, <laughs> they were right there. So it always, always worked, you know. Um, so they still get together and make Barb's lasagna in Evansville. So it's a 
eating is, a, is an important thing. Anyway, uh, it, uh, Barb also reminds me of time, though, so that's what I was getting at. So, uh, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Let's go to it first. Um, I didn't put that on the sheet, but Genesis 1, 28, I believe it is. He cre- God creates the first human beings. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. As you think of how God creates all the plants, all the vegetable kingdom, what does he create it primarily for? For people to eat, right? (laughs) And for the animals to eat. It's interesting, it comes up right at the very beginning of Genesis. And then if you go to Genesis 2, verse 9, Genesis 2, 9, And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there are these trees that are good for food, and then there are these two central trees, the tree of life, which would presumably give immortality, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or the tree by which good and evil are known. It could be translated there. Uh, and then verses, um, uh, let's see, verses uh, 15 to 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, and this is the first specific reference to an actual command. Before that, he had talked about how you'll reproduce and so on. But here it's a direct command in the garden. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Uh, to eat of that tree is death. So you can eat, 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 but there's a boundary here, and you're not supposed to eat of this tree. And so we go then to uh, Genesis chapter 3, um, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat? From any tree in the garden. So he's talking about eating already here. And of course, he's also causing her to do what? Doubt the word, right? <laughs> Question the word. God really say? That's what he really meant? No. Don't you think he wants you to be happy and just enjoy whatever you want? You know? uh, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not. You, may, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. She kind of adds a little bit there to the commandment, but that's sort of interesting. Um, and Satan says, you will not surely die. And it, with Satan's words, there, there's always a half-truth. Uh, when she ate the fruit, did she drop over dead on the spot physically? No. But there was death in terms of the fact that she was then separated from God by her disobedience. She had turned her back on God, as Adam did as well. And notice what happens then. She looks it over, verse 6, When the woman saw it, the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So she's looking at it. It looks good. It's pleasing. It's desirable for gaining 
wisdom. And notice the essence of the temptation was, God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, right? When you like to be like God, be in control of your own life, you're in control of your own destiny, call the shots yourself. <laughs> That's the essence of every temptation. And she falls for it. She desires to be like God. The fruit looks good and so on. And so she eats. And then the fallout from all of that too, we don't have time to go into all that, but the fallout all has to do with eating as well then as uh, cre not just Adam and Eve, but creation falls. And so Adam will plant, I don't know, okra and broccoli and he will get what? Thorns and thistles. <laughs> from that point on, things just don't work out too well. And he has to get his food by the sweat of his brow. Um, go quickly then to uh, one of my favorite parables, Luke chapter 15. Luke 15. Great chapter central to... Uh, um, Luke's Gospel. In fact, uh, our pastor, our Professor Just, who's been here some, he wrote the commentary on Luke for the Concordia Commentary Series. He organizes the whole commentary on Luke around that theme of uh, the feast uh, that, to which we are invited. And it's certainly here in this passage. Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. They seemed to be attracted to Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. <laughs> See, that's what really shocked them. Not just that he hung out with them, but that he ate with them. Because to eat was to do what? To be in fellowship with them, to accept them as friends, to want to be with them, <laughs> be, in, be engaged with their lives. And he's supposed to be some rabbi or religious teacher, and he's eating with sinners. So, uh, Jesus then goes on to, to tell the, the first two parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And then uh, we go on to the lost son, verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Um, he would have gotten his share of the property when, by the way? When his father died. So in effect, he's saying here, Dad, I wish you were dead. <laughs> you know, why don't you drop dead? Uh, and weirdly, Father goes along with this, right? <laughs> uh, so he divided his property between them. Notice he gives the younger son his share and the older son his share too, apparently, at this point. Uh, he's in semi-retirement, I guess, now. Uh, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set out for a distant country. He goes where? Far away. Yeah, far away from the Father, distancing himself from the Father. That's what sin does. It distances us from God. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living, and after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine. Not enough food, right, in that whole country. And he began to be in want, in need. His friends are kind of missing now. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. Uh, could you go any lower than that in terms of Jewish status? Probably not. <laughs> the pig is an unclean animal to begin with. He's 
slapping the hogs, feeding the pigs. And verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating. He is envious of what? Pigs. <laughs> Little Jewish boy envious of the pigs. Fascinating. Uh, because they're eating better than he is. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? He's thinking about what? How he ate in the father's house. Here I am starving to death. I will sit out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. By the way, this still shows us that he didn't get it yet. He didn't understand because he thinks he's going to go home now and he knows he can't go home as a son or he thinks he can't, but he's going to go home as what? A servant. So he's going to do what? Kind of work his way back into the house. His works will do it. Let's see if that's what happens when he gets back. I'm, I'm sure you know the story, but uh, verse 20, he got up and went to his father but while he was still a long way off, his father, who was watching and waiting, saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Uh, who initiates the reconciliation here? Not the son, but the father, right? Before the son can even say anything, he's being hugged and kissed and all the sloppy stuff, you know. Uh, verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's going to say, make me like one of your hired men. But he doesn't get a chance to say it because the father is ready for what? The party, <laughs> the feast, the meal. Eh? He, the son comes home and, and the father doesn't say, I told you so. The father doesn't say, well, we'll put you on probation, son, and we'll see if you shape up, and then maybe, you know, we'll let you back into the house, you know. What does the father say? Kill the fatted calf! <laughs> Let's have a meal, let the party roll, and we'll celebrate. Uh, and so that feasting is a part of it. Uh, I probably better quit, but the older son is fun, too, because uh, he hears... He's out, been working in the turnip field, you know, and doing all the work all the time, keeping the place together while his younger, younger brother is off wasting all the money. And then he finds out there's music and dancing and feasting going on. And the older son doesn't want to go in, right? He doesn't want to go to the meal. Why not? Because he's not really hungry, is he? <laughs> he's pretty satisfied with his life as it is. And so he's the one now who cuts himself off from the father, and the father goes out and pleads with him to come into the feast. Well, it's, so, it's just central to, and I'm, I'm sure you kind of know all this, I just wanted to remind you of it, just so central to uh, everything we do as God's people, and then the central meal, take eat, this is my body, looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb and his kingdom, which shall have no end. Uh, I don't know, I, I printed out the, the first two verses of that last hymn, uh, which I never used too often, I had never used too often, and I'm not sure why I didn't use it, because it's a great hymn uh, by this Johann Rist, and I just printed out the first two verses because I didn't know whether you'd get to it singing, we don't always get to the third hymn, but I think you did today, didn't you? Yeah, anyway, that's good. Uh, so, 
let's just uh, read this together. He's obviously drawing on John chapter 6, the bread of heaven, the bread of life. And let's just uh, read these verses together, these two verses in closing today. O living bread from heaven, how well you feed your guest. The gifts that you have given have filled my heart with rest. O wondrous food of blessing, O cup that heals our woes, my heart this gift possessing with praises overflows. My Lord, you here have led me to this most holy place, and with yourself have fed me the treasures of your grace. For you have freely given what earth could never buy, the bread of life from heaven, that now I shall not die. Amen. Well, thanks for being here today. Have a great week. God bless.